Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. Arizona's senators have drawn a lot of national attention this year. Senator Jeff Flake's decision to retire created an open race for his seat, and John Kyle was appointed to fill the other U.S. Senate seat after longtime Senator John McCain died. On today's show, we'll hear from Senator Kyle and one of the candidates for the other seat. We'll also spend time talking about the tone of this year's Arizona Senate race. First, we speak with Kirsten Sinema, a Democratic member of the U.S. House of Representatives and candidate for the U.S. Senate. She spent six years in the U.S. House representing the Metro Phoenix area. She sat down with us one day after her debate with Republican Martha McSally. We began our discussion talking about possible changes to the marketplace for the Affordable Care Act, because there's only one insurance option in most of Arizona. So first, let me just say that this is the part of our current health care system that's working the worst. It's not working well. In Arizona, folks only have one option for a provider. And if they don't qualify for a subsidy, it is not affordable. They can't afford to pay the premiums or the deductibles. I actually think that we should reconsider this part of the health care law and figure out a new way to provide care to people who don't get coverage through their employer or who own their own small business. So that's an area of healthcare law that I wanna fix. But I also gotta tell you that as I travel the state and hear from Arizonans, healthcare's the number one issue that people talk to me about. And while they're concerned about the increasing costs of healthcare, they're even more concerned about what's at stake and what they could lose. So people with pre-existing conditions talk to me every single day and are concerned about losing that protection. If it were to be taken away by Congress, they tried once last year, they said they're going to try again right after the election, then nearly 2.8 million Arizonans could lose access to their health care coverage. And that's really scary for people. The president recently announced uh, the renegotiation of what was NAFTA has a new name now. From what you've seen of it, and it's obviously a bulky document, uh, is it a good deal for Arizona? Well, it's too early for us to tell what this new trade agreement will be like for Arizona. But one thing I can tell you that we do know about already is the impact that tariffs have had on Arizona's economy. Tariffs have been hitting us particularly hard because we do a lot of manufacturing and we have a very robust agricultural community. So I hear from cotton farmers in southern Arizona that they're earning 25% less per bushel than they were before the tariffs. We've seen five dairy farms that have sold since the tariffs have come into effect. And I hear from our manufacturing folks every day that they're concerned about these increased costs around aluminum and steel. So businesses tell me over and over again that they're paying more and getting less in profit because of these tariffs. We need to have those good agreements and those good working relationships for Arizona businesses to thrive. A lot of times uh, members of Congress have, shall we say, a bit of an East Coast-centric uh, view of things. How do you push through those Western priorities on public versus private land and water issues that maybe some of the more powerful East Coast members of the Senate don't understand? I'm so glad you brought this up because Washington is 
chaotic and a mess, and they certainly have an East Coast bias. And so as a Westerner born and raised right here in Southern Arizona, I take as much time as I can teaching my colleagues about what it means to be a Westerner and what it means to be an Arizonan. So some of the policies that they have put forward in Washington just don't work for us. I'll give you a few examples. There was a provision um, to allow the sale of public lands to private entities without any public input. And in Arizona, that doesn't fly. Another area of real difference between Westerners and East Coasters is on the issue of privacy. And so when there is legislation that allows internet companies to sell the private data of Americans, including your social security number, your home address, your children's private information, I voted no on that legislation because in Arizona, we don't believe that private entities or the government should have access to our private information. One further example would be the issue of the border. We hear folks back on the East Coast talking about how they want to address border security and immigration, but they don't really know much about the border and they've not been there, they haven't experienced or seen it. But I know that we need a robust, comprehensive strategy to keep our border secure and that we do need to make important changes in our immigration law to provide a path to citizenship for dreamers. You bring up the border, so let's talk about it. 2007, there was an attempt at comprehensive immigration reform, bipartisan, failed. We had the Gang of Eight that included our then two U.S. Senators, Kyle and McCain, failed. Is there one linchpin that will get a bipartisan bill through when it comes to border security and immigration reform? The reality is we have the votes to solve this problem. What we don't have is the cooperation of leadership and people who are trying to score political points. They're stopping us from getting this done, even though we've got the solutions right in our hands. So I've introduced a bill called the USA Act. It's a bipartisan, half Democrat, half Republican. It funds smart border security, like drones and boots on the ground and cameras, night vision tools, but it partners it with a path to citizenship for our dreamers, who are such an important part of Arizona's lifeblood and our economy. And we've got the votes to pass this legislation, but unfortunately there are hardliners in both parties who refuse to compromise and find common ground in the middle. And if we could get them to move out of the way and let us grown-ups do the work, we could get this done. Let me jump back to water for a second. The Senate is working on a new drought contingency plan. Uh, Senator Kyle, Senator Flake have both said great things about it. But as a member of the Senate, obviously you would have uh, some say on it. If you've seen it, is it a good idea? You know, the changes, the updates, and is it time for Arizona to stop being a junior partner uh, on the Colorado? So the key for Arizona's future when it comes to water is forging partnerships with our states in the region. We've got to have good, healthy, trust-based working relationships with Colorado, New Mexico, Nevada, California, so that we all can share that water in a way that's equitable and provides long-term sustainability for Arizona. Now, Senator Kyle has been a leader on the issue of water for many years, and now that he's back serving in the United States Senate, um, it's my hope to work with him um, as a United States Senator to find this regional shared agreement. It is absolutely important that we do this together. Arizona uh, should not go alone at this issue because we can't achieve our objectives unless we work together. Jumping to military, Davis Mountain Air Force Base, home to the A-10. It's the main plane flown out of there. 
what can you do as a member of the Senate from Arizona to protect Davis Monthan in the event of another uh, round of base closures, which have been rumored to possibly be coming within the next few years? There have been attempts to close bases in Arizona in the past, and the good news is, is the Arizona delegation has always worked together, Republicans and Democrats, to stop those attempts. And Davis Monthan is so important for our community. I visited it myself and seen firsthand the incredible work that they do. And that's why just this year, we increased funding for Davis Monthan by $52 million. We also increased funding for the A-10 by $163 million. But my work to protect the A-10 has gone back for many years. In 2014, I was working with then Congressman Ron Barber, who served here in Southern Arizona before Martha McSally was elected. And we teamed up with Candace Miller, who is a Republican member of Congress, and we fought hard to save the A-10, and we got it done. The reality is to save important programs like the A-10 and important parts of our community like Davis Monthan, it has to be done together in a bipartisan way. You had some, uh, shall we say, less than flattering comments for the U.S. Senate as a whole over the nomination of now Justice Kavanaugh on the U.S. Supreme Court. If the Democrats take the House, there are already Democrats saying they will begin an impeachment of Justice Kavanaugh. If that went through and you were in the Senate, it could come to the Senate to have him removed. That's the Senate's job to vote that up or down. Would you vote that up or down to remove I, him? I would not support impeachment. While I believe that the Senate engaged in a really horrific process, I mean, they, they turned it into a circus. And I believe they denigrated the importance of this process in the United States Senate. To do something like that again would be inappropriate. What the Senate should be doing is approaching each nominee with the weight of that person's credentials, with his or her approach to jurisprudence, an evaluation of how their peers judge them, and looking for things like their character and their integrity. But you should never turn it into a partisan process. And I would absolutely oppose efforts to try and go back and reopen that difficult time. President Trump actively campaigning against you, sending out emails on behalf of your opponent, coming to Arizona to campaign with your opponent. If you're elected, how do you work with him? Well, I've been able to work with President Trump over the last year and a half. And my approach is a very simple and I think a very pragmatic approach. If the president is doing something that's right for Arizona, I will step right up with him and work together. I've passed five pieces of legislation protecting veterans in Arizona, and he signed every single one of them. And I have been proud to work with him and his team to get that done. But when he proposed these tariffs and started a trade war, I was just as willing to stand up and say no, because that is wrong for my state. I believe that your approach should be to just call the balls and the strikes. But what it shouldn't be is a partisan process. And one thing Arizonans know they can count on from me is that I'll never be someone who does what I'm told by party leaders, that I will always and always have put Arizona first. Thanks so much for sitting down with us. Thanks so much. That was Kirsten Cinema, Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate in Arizona. You can hear and watch our entire interview on our website. We've reached out to her opponent, Republican Martha McSally, multiple times to schedule an interview. So far, she has yet to take us up on that offer. This election season has brought a wave of negative ads aimed at the two women, Cinema and McSally, vying for Jeff Flake's seat. 
To discuss the overall tone of this election, I sat down with University of Arizona professor Kate Kensky. She teaches political communication and studies public opinion. On this U.S. Senate race, we have seen some very nasty ads on both sides. Is this race any nastier than previous races, or are we just noticing it this year? I think we're probably noticing it for a couple reasons. One reason is is that we've been focused on tone, not just in, in an academic sense, but collectively as a society, we've been concerned about tone as things have progressed on social media where people seem to make more statements with less filtering. And so that is changing how we see the, the civility of how people are supposed to communicate. I think the second reason for this race in particular that we're noticing some change is that we have two candidates who are females. And we tend to hold females rhetorically to a different standard than we do male candidates. Why do we hold women candidates at a different standard than male candidates? We tend to do that with male-female interactions in general. Uh, there's a large body of research when it comes to women in leadership or women inside of organizations, where when women make declarative statements, we tend to perceive that more negatively than when men make the same thing. Now, unfortunately for women, when men tend to express themselves emotively, we tend to give them high fives. When women do the same thing, we tend to hold them to the standard of they're too weak, they are not fit for whatever position we're evaluating them on. And so women are, are caught in a double bind, and I would say that having two candidates, it, it's even more exacerbated. And so I think that's part of the reason why we are seeing this discourse as um, something more uncivil than perhaps what we've seen in other races and those across the country. So with two women running and this uh, background idea of how people are supposed to act uh, in, in various roles, if you will, do all these negative ads and does the tone of this campaign hurt either candidate in the end? It'll depend on how people evaluate the particular claims made within the ads. Generally speaking, we find that negative ads don't really have much effect on turnout one way or the other. The thing that has the greatest impact on turnout is how much money and effort and you know, eyeballs to ads are actually going on for a given side. That's usually the greatest indicator of who's going to win, not necessarily positive or negative. However, the reason why I say that it matters in terms of, of the quality of the negative is that we know that certain kinds of appeals tend to motivate certain kinds of people. And so those kinds of ads that make you angry, if you already have a, a pony in the race and so you're a Democrat or a Republican, that's going to make you more likely to turn out to vote. We had an ad against representative cinema by an outside group, and it has the mushroom cloud over Phoenix. That's an ad people are talking about. Is that good or bad for either of the candidates? Well, what the research would suggest is that's probably going to be less likely to hurt Martha McSally than help her. Because when negative ads are put forth by third parties or groups outside of the two candidates running, any kind of potential backlash is less likely to affect the candidate. We're talking with Kate Kensky. She's a political communications specialist here at the University of Arizona. When it comes to all these negative ads, we always hear that people don't like them. They don't like the tone. 
are we reaching a point where things have to come back or two years from now are we going to be surprised that it was ratcheted up yet again? Unfortunately, the longer I study campaigns, the more I think it's the latter. It's you know surprising when you look back at some of the the ads that were put forth you know ten years ago, twenty years ago, and at the time those ads seemed to be rather nasty, and you know by today's standards we look back and we think oh those attacks you know by comparison are are relatively tame. I'm not sure what the ceiling or floor depending on your perspective is on this level of negativity and viciousness. But it seems that we've always, or at least candidates these days, are finding ways to, to push the boundaries. We do know that with the founding of our country, that there have been rules put in place suggesting that civil discourse is important. For example, you're not supposed to use the word liar if you're a senator on the Senate floor. And the reason is, is that the Senate has to be a deliberative body to some extent. And the more we use words that make the opposition um, seem less than human, the less likely we are to actually have a dialogue. And so I would say if there's one big change about campaigns because of the way candidates and groups are talking to one another, it's that campaigns are no longer deliberative events. Instead, they seem to be, you know, matches where everyone or it's already determined who their their candidate is, and they're less willing to entertain possibilities um, beyond what they've already decided. Going back to where we began this with two women running, when it comes to the tone of this particular campaign, whomever wins will have six years on the Senate floor before they have to run again. Does that tone necessarily carry over to their day-to-day work on the Senate floor, the tone of the campaign? And I guess we'll ask you to predict what the tone of a campaign will be in six years. You know, it's, it's hard to say because of the changing dynamics of the, the Senate. You know, reports seem to be that senators have less casual contact with members of the opposition outside of their time on the floor. And that's problematic because quite a bit of work actually gets done behind the scenes. And so um, we hope it doesn't. It was the case in the past that people could have what, again, at the time were considered nasty campaigns and kind of get over it at the end, have that moment um, right after they've won of reconciliation where someone offers you know, a concession speech that wishes the opponent well. And we'll have to see if, if those kinds of concession speeches are given this year, not just in this race, but across the country. Because without those kinds of moments, I think it would be foretelling for a U.S. Senate that basically um, is one that isn't a deliberative body. Do we see in races like this one most of the negative ads coming from outside or from candidates? It depends on the the race itself. When races matter to the national parties overall, you should be seeing more third parties coming in and trying to intervene because, again, it matters more beyond the race itself. When it comes to negative ads and the next campaign, uh, when the winner is running again for re-election or maybe the person who loses is challenging again. Do any of those negative ads stick from the previous campaign? With our bombardment of all sorts of media hitting at us as citizens at all times, our memories have become shorter and shorter. 
And I think more and more people are living in the moment. That said, as people put campaigns out on the internet, there's a digital digital uh, history left there and future campaigns can pull segments and say, well, don't you recall when you said this in this ad? And so if, if other campaigns in the future pull what current campaigns are saying, then yes, that could affect future races. All right. Well, we'll leave it there and see how this one turns out. Thank you. Thanks. That was UA political communication professor Kate Kensky. Earlier in the show, we talked with U.S. Senate Democratic candidate Kirsten Cinema. Republican candidate Martha McSally has not accepted our interview requests. We hope to bring you an interview with her next week. Now we'll talk with John Kyle. He served Arizona as a U.S. Senator for 18 years before retiring. After nearly six years away from the Senate, he's back in the Capitol, filling out part of the late Senator John McCain's term. Senator Kyle visited Tucson this week, his first time in the old Pueblo since returning to the Senate. First of all, it feels great to be back in Tucson. <laughs> I haven't been back here for a while, and uh, it's good to see my old friends here and uh, hear again some of the issues that, for some reason, the issues seem to remain the same. VA still has a problem, still have a problem down on the border, uh, and we're still trying to protect our military installations and the like, which is all good to hear about today. Washington is a little different, uh, but except for the Kavanaugh hearings, it's not that different. And I had spent some time back in Washington after I left the Senate as well. But the Kavanaugh hearings after the allegations of the impropriety really turned the place into a, an environment that was not fun to be in, and I'm sure it wasn't very attractive to be watched. Hopefully that will dissipate over time after the election and people have time to relax their family and think it, think it over and go home a while. Uh, we'll come back in January and work okay. There's also a small lame duck session in November and December to finish up some of the things that need to be done. You mentioned the Kavanaugh hearings saying they weren't fun, but hopefully those wounds can heal. Some of those wounds looked pretty deep. They are. When, when the stakes aren't as high, I suspect the emotions won't be as high. Uh, Democrats saw big stakes here in a member going on the Supreme Court who they thought would would not be the kind of judge that they wanted, and they wanted to stop him at all costs, and they tried very hard. Hopefully the, the issues that we'll have to face in the future won't engender that same kind of uh, emotional hostility that you saw. You met with veterans today. You just mentioned that. From what they're telling you, is Washington doing enough for the men and women who have left the military? No, and part of the problem is the nature of the VA system. During the time I was gone, the whole expose of the problems in the VA came up, came to public light, and Congress in the meantime has done a lot to try to fix them, including the Mission Act, which uh, Martha McSally talked about today, and she had a lot to do with. Uh, this offers some real opportunity for improvement, but right here in, Fe in uh, Tucson, the uh, ratings for the VA in, in Tucson went down to the bottom, and nobody can quite figure out why, so we're going to try to get to the bottom of that. There are still problems that need to be fixed, let's put it that way. And uh, whenever you've got a big government-run system like that, I, I think you can expect to have problems. You also mentioned immigration. I remember doing an interview with you like this in 2007, sitting in your Senate office in Washington. The immigration deal had just fallen apart. Now, after six years gone, um, immigration's still on the table. Is there anything, is there a linchpin to make immigration pass? You've been through it a couple of times. 
somehow the politics has to be taken out of it. As long as the politics are there, it's not going to get solved. We had a solution to the so-called DACA problem. I thought it was a good solution. And then there were subsequent solutions to it. But some people want a political issue rather than a solution. And as long as that's the uh, equation, it's going to be very hard to get anything done. You mentioned a political issue on all these things we've just talked about. Is that the new norm now? It's really a political issue and not solutions that are going on? Obviously, politics has always been a big part of Washington. And uh, there have been times in our history when it's been pretty nasty, as it is right now. But you'd like to get over that. Uh, you'd like to have a more civil discourse in the place that we're supposed to have that conversation, namely in the House and in the Senate with the President. And when the lack of civility impedes the ability of the members to get together and make policy for the good of the country, uh, you have to ask what the causes of that are and what we can do to help. Uh, you've got to be nicer. And we've got to get back to civility so that we can have a debate about the merits of the issues rather than calling each other names and uh, just trying to throw sand in the works because we don't like the folks on the other side. As we wrap this up, you've talked a couple times about things going on in January. When you took this position, you said you'd stay through the end of this legislative session in December. Have you made a decision to stay longer? And what will, in, if you haven't, what enters into your thought process as you well, work through that? Uh, the answer is no, I haven't made a decision. When I make a decision, I'll talk to the governor about it first because he'll have the obligation of then appointing my successor. And uh, I want to make sure he has plenty of time to give that the thought that he needs. Um, I, I left the Senate in 2013 after having served in it for 18 years, in addition to eight years in the House. And uh, there comes a point when you say, I've, I've done enough. There's always more you can do. But if you follow that rule, you never leave. And I think there's a point at which people should probably leave before they have to be hauled out. Some can serve to the end of their career with great distinction. Uh, my old colleague John McCain was one. In my case, I have obligations to my family, and I think I've served my time, and it really is time to make way for someone else, and so I'll probably make that decision at some point. Governor Ducey will have the opportunity to appoint somebody to take my place, but I must say I was very honored that he selected me to serve in John's seat, and um, it's a real privilege to serve the people of Arizona again. As I said, I couldn't wait to get to Tucson just to revisit places and people that I've known for so long, and and it's a lot of fun to just get around and visit with them, and a real honor to be able to serve them in the United States Senate. That was U.S. Senator John Kyle, and that's The Buzz for this week. A look ahead to next week, we'll spend some time talking with people active in the Tucson tech sector to get a sense of where the industry is now and where it's headed. You can find all episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. Ariana Brochus produced and edited the show. Nate Huffman, Steve Riggs, and Bob Lindbergh recorded the interviews with Representative Cinema and Senator Kyle. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Andrea Kelly is the news director. And our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.